This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everybody, back with another weekly roundup. We are missing Santiago today as he is in uh, traveling uh, in another continent with some pretty subpar Wi-Fi, but we have three folks subbing in for Santiago. Number one, we've got the Matt Levine of crypto. We've got Byron subbing in, uh, newsletter writer from Blockworks, self self declared Matt Levine of crypto. Self declared. We've got Mr. Mike Ippolito, my, uh, my co-founder at Blockworks, it. and then we also have a special guest Matt Hepler, VP at Arca. Matt, welcome to the show, and Byron and Mike, but you guys don't get your own specific shout out. Matt, welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Yeah, of course. Very excited to talk Terra and Anchor with you. Um, before, so Matt, I think it'd be a, a little bit helpful. Can you just give folks a very quick background on yourself and just like, why did we bring you to the table? And then we're going to jump into, obviously, Anchor and what's going on with um, just the different proposals that you guys are uh, running by the community. Yeah, of course. So, you know, most of my career I spent on the uh, public equity side and uh, was really focused on a strategy where, you know, we would take large positions in, in public companies and, um, you know, engage management teams and boards and use governance as a way to, you know, effectuate change that would be, you know, positive for shareholders, you know, for the business, sustainability and, uh, and for governance. And, um, you know, that that process is very well defined in equities, um, you know, with annual meetings and voting and uh, and a lot of infrastructure around that process. And we are still in the very early stages of governance in uh, in digital assets. And I think, um, you know, while completely different asset classes, there's a lot of, uh, you know, concepts that can be applied from you know, traditional finance to to uh, digital assets. There are a couple of big things that we want to cover today. One is how one is just anchor right and how is anchor's apy actually still staying kind of at around 19% while some of these other stable yields are down to like 2 to 5% the other is terra right now is i'm not sure if you want to opine on this but terra i know you guys are uh, very interested in that ecosystem everything else is down like 7 to 15% terra's up 12% and then the last thing is just some of your proposals that you guys have presented before we jump into that though i want to get your take on governance in equities versus governance in crypto and what are the similarities and what are the differences there yeah i mean i think i think the similarities are you know if you approach a situation with really good facts present them broadly you know like we've done with anchor um usually if if people are honest and and smart we can get to the same answer because everybody's essentially aligned um i think the difference is in equities, there are just very defined structures of how to, you know, effectuate change with a company. You know, you, the board, you know, the, there's a board uh, group, there's a management team, they have consultants, they're very well resourced with, uh, with a lot of employees. And so really most of the change is either facilitated through, you know, the board and the management team and, 
every year there's an election for directors that are supposed to be proxy, a proxy for shareholders. So they effectually essentially represent shareholders' best interests. And, um, you know, that cadence is very defined on an annual basis when you can actually, you know, make changes and proposals and nominate directors. In digital assets, I mean, the core ethos is complete decentralization. So the benefit is you're able to, you know, put something on a forum, develop, try to develop consensus and put something to a vote and the turnaround time is very quick. It could be a week and you're actually making a change to the business um, uh, versus like a year timeline. Now, the, the downside is voter participation is very low. Uh, typically, I mean, there's a 10% turnout for digital assets on a vote where you get, you know, 90% in, in equities. Um, so consensus building is, is difficult and there's just not a very steady cadence of proposals and when they, sh you know, when they're submitted. So you could have a thousand different proposals, but it's very difficult for, you know, token holders to sift through, you know, what are real, what are credible and, um, you know, which ones are not. Um, so I think there's a, a big opportunity for, um, you know, thought leadership in the space and, uh, and that's why, you know, we're, we think that there's a big opportunity in Anchor. Hmm. Is there, last question on this, and then we can jump into Anchor, is in traditional equities, you said 90%. Is that a delegation of votes or is that someone actually one person vote? Is that 90% of the, the uh, equity holders are actually yeah. voting? Yeah. So if you look at equities, you know, 80% are usually owned by institutions, you know, large funds, including, you know, the BlackRock, State Streets, Fidelities of the world, um, you know traditional institutional, you know, like hedge funds and long only funds. And then 20% is, uh, you know, retail investors. And what you find is all of the larger funds have a very um, uh, robust governance process where they actually have to vote for their clients. It's, you know, it's their fiduciary duty to vote. So they go through all the proposals. There's a specific time in the year, usually in May, when they review everything. Um, on the retail side, usually it's split you know, 50% of people vote, 50% don't. Um, so you get a much higher turnout just because there's much more fund exposure that has a process to, to do this. Um, you know, in, in digital assets, you have, you obviously have some funds, you have a lot of VC exposure where uh, VC funds don't like taking a side you know, on proposals. Um, so yeah, that's kind of why the, the turnout's typically a lot lower. Yeah, got it. Let's jump into Anchor, unless Byron or Mike wants to jump in with any any other that fun stuff. But so for those who don't know, and Matt, I'm going to ask you to actually give us a much better definition than this. But the the very high level on Anchor is Anchor is really the backbone of the Terra ecosystem. It's got I don't know maybe thirteen. I think it's around thirteen billion in TVL today. About sixty percent of the total TVL on Terra is coming from Anchor right now, and it's really been instrumental to uh, bootstrapping the U UST's demand, right? And it's done that in a really simple way, which is by paying these like 15 to 20% APYs on UST deposits. It's similar, but similar to an Aveir compound, but different. Uh, it's different from these like money market protocols uh, with their variable deposit and borrow rates that are based on market supply and demand. And at its heart, Anchor is really a savings protocol, uh, whereas Aave and Compound are more like money markets. And uh, the difference, one of the big, well, we can get into the differences later, but I think Matt, I, it, I think it'd be helpful to just get your understanding and your take on why anchor is so crucial to the Terra ecosystem and like really what is anchor in your view. And then we can jump into, uh, some of the fun stuff. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, if you look at, um, 
just Terra and the, the ecosystem in general, it's the second largest, you know, platform on DeFi. And, you know, it has 17 apps, uh, run, businesses running on it um, versus Ethereum that has, you know, over 250. Um, so adoption is very critical for uh, Terra and the entire ecosystem. Um, you know, adoption goes up, they're allowed to mint more uh, UST and burn more Luna. And, uh, you know, at the current rate, they're burning <clears throat> a million and a half Luna per day. Um, so if you get to 50 billion by the end of the year, you know, you're almost out of Luna. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, Anchor is a very simple business model. Uh, it's very attractive and easy to use for depositors. Um, and it gets people familiar with using um, uh, stable coins. You know, if, if you if you compare UST, which is an algorithmic stable coin uh, to, you know, UST or USDC, um, it's much more censorship resistant. It's capital efficient and uh, decentralized. Um, and and so it's really creating, you know, it's a learning experience for users. Um, I deposit my, you know, 100 grand of, of uh, UST and I get, you know, 20 percent back. It's also really good for, you know, small, medium sized businesses. Um, so yeah, I think right now it, it was very adoption focused, um, very kind of subsidy oriented. Uh, and you have this imbalance now where you've got, you know, 9 billion of de deposits, but you only have a, a borrow of, of 3 billion. And that's really where you, you know, you make your money as a, you know, lending and deposit platform. Um, so yeah, I think over time as they, you know, they're adding new, um, collateral assets on the platform. They currently have Luna and, and ETH, but they're adding, you know, Avalanche and Atom. And as they take in more collateral on the borrow side, they're able to stake those those assets and earn a return, which should, you know, eventually offset the the you know the yield on the deposit side. Um, but right now there's as you mentioned, it's a big there's a big imbalance. So, so Matt, you kind of, I think there are a couple of different, uh, I mean, just a couple of different takeaways from what you just said. I mean, in order for Anchor to continue to be successful, there are two different sets of constituents that need to get served, right? There are the people that are depositing and getting that 19% yield, which may or may not be sustainable. And then there are people that are actually borrowing from the protocol, right? And one of the things, the re the, the way Anchor tries to make it attractive, right, to borrow um, is to actually subsidize with the Anchor token, right? Which may or may not be sustainable. But, you know, I think I think one of the big questions I know that, you know, when you and I last chatted is that value is not properly accruing back to anchor token holders, right? So this is all based on the Terra ecosystem and Luna is kind of the, you know, the backbone of that. But ultimately, Terra is, uh, you know, they're separate Terra stakeholders in their own right. And because of the current structure, value is not accruing properly back to a protocol that has, like Jason said, 13 billion in TVL. So, can you just like walk us through why you think that is? And then maybe if we get into the specifics of the proposal that you put forward as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the short answer is that, you know, it's, it's not sustainable. The, the 20% was a number um, that was actually fixed when the business was launched and has really been a bootstrapping mechanism for demand. If you actually look in the, the um, anchor white paper, they actually have um, what's called the anchor rate. And that was supposed to be, sort of a, um, you know, normalized rate for, for DeFi that would essentially um, take into account the earnings that you're getting on the staked assets, um, which today is, you know, kind of 10% or lower. So if you just do the combination, if you do the comparison 10% versus 20%, we're, we've got a big delta here. 
So we think, um, you know, one of the, uh, just one more comment before getting into the proposal, you know, we, we feel like there's a pretty easy, um, you know, fix for this. There's the problem is there's a very concentrated amount of depositors that are, uh, taking, you know, a larger percentage of the yield rewards versus the small and medium sized power users and, and companies. So, um, that's kind of, you know, that kind of tees up the conversation about the proposal. Um, we think that, you know, the sustainability issues can be fixed. So, so you, you said that um, uh, you mentioned bootstrapping. So one of my questions is like, why is the Terra ecosystem still in bootstrapping mode? You know, Luna's got a $30 billion market cap. TFL's got like $30 billion of, of Luna in reserve. Like why, why are they still bootstrapping? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, I think this is just kind of, you know, this hasn't really been addressed and it hasn't been catalyzed by anyone in governance. Um, I think it's even more important as they just, you know, they just received a $450 million injection of UST to the reserve. They previously had a, you know, half a billion dollar injection. Um, so these, these are occurring very frequently and they're burning rewards at a very, a very high rate. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think it's just a, a case of this is where it was when they launched and they've got an incredible scale. Like you said, the TVL is, is, uh, grown dramatically and um, is going to continue to grow. So we really believe that this can be run more autonomously, particularly as they uh, they add more collateral to the uh, to the platform. Does the system still need that 19 and a half percent yield, though? Like, could the system not be fine on a 10 percent yield or whatever would be more sustainable? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we've done one of the nice things just, you know, being a member of ARCA, we've, we've got a lot of resources to, to do a lot of deep research. And the last thing we want to do is short circuit, you know, adoption as we're on the, the logarithmic scale of, of growth. And we were very careful about, you know, setting some of these thresholds for rewards. Uh, we think, you know, the user that has a hundred thousand dollars of deposits, um, you know, that's a, that's a very, you know, uh, reasonable level for, incentivizing people to come on the platform and represents, you know, not the, not as, as high of the rewards that are moving to, you know, larger institutions that are using us for our yield strategy, you know, and then you've got very good power users and ambassadors for the product and kind of the, you know, hundred to half a million dollar range. And yeah, we think, we think those can come down. Um, but certainly the, you know, the larger institutions that are using us for more of like a yield strategy, we don't think that, it really has much impact on, on adoption. Um, so that's why we kind of, we, you know, we, we've tiered this proposal appropriately. So to, so Matt, to just tee everything up here, you know, two big problems. We've got some, some amount of unsustainability on the business model because we're not able to add uh, demand for borrow and demand for earn at the same time. And also, you know, value is not occurring back to anchor uh, token holders, right? Like anchor is like flat to down since it's, uh, since it's launched, right? And it's accumulated 13 billion in TBL. It doesn't really seem just multiple different proposals out there right now to change. Like you guys um, proposed something with Polychain. There's a proposal out there from a group called Retrograde. I'm pretty sure there's another proposal as well uh, that is now live, which is kind of based on the yield reserve. Can you just kind of give us a summary of your proposal, some of the other ones that's out there, and then how should people be assessing trade-offs of the various proposals? Yeah, yeah, no, thanks. I think the first thing is, you know, none of these proposals are mutually exclusive. Um, uh, it's not kind of one or the other. 
we we chose to focus on um, the you know the issue that was most broadly recognized as not being sustainable going forward, also being the one that's going to create more the most value for ANC token holders, and something that was also very simple um, where it wouldn't require a lot of additional resources to implement. And, um, and is also the most pressing issue given that we've just got $450 million of, you know, UST, um, that's, you know, on a, on a pretty high burn rate. So we wanted to really focus on, on this issue, uh, in terms of the other proposals, there was a, you know, a VGov proposal from retrograde retrograde is launching <clears throat> their own protocol, um, to really focus on Terra and, and, uh, uh, and centralizing governance. Um, you know, I think we understand the concept uh, relative to, you know, Curve and, and this popularity. Um, in general, we think that, you know, having to lock up tokens for votes over a four-year period doesn't, you know, make sense. It's That's more of a, you know, private equity, um, like VC timeline in terms of investor timeline versus, you know, a public uh, digital asset. Um, so yeah, I think I think while we recognize that that does create some demand, we think from a sustainability standpoint, the the burn on the reserves is more critical. Um, and then yeah, I think there was one other proposal that uh, tried to manage rewards based on uh, like volatility of the reserve and depletion. I think the issue there is it really doesn't address this. Um, you know, gaming of the system from large depositors, which is what we're trying to focus on. And also we want to get better, give better benefits to the so small. You're, and you're really focusing on two things here. One is the burn of the reserve. And then two is focusing on making it so that the, that everyone's benefiting from the system. And by the, the burn of the reserve, this is a, the, the small brain question here. I just want to make sure I fully understand it, which is if you deposit like a hundred Luna, the depositors are getting, let's say $8 from the staking yield, maybe two to three from the borrow interest. And then that shortfall of the 10 or 11 bucks right now is made up from the yield reserve. Just so I'm fully on. Okay. Yes. Yes. So, you know, ideally over time, um, you know, we think this, this proposal, if you get to kind of a 15%, zone blended with large and small users, you know, that saves them four to 500 million, uh, 400 to $500 billion, um, you know, on run rate depletion, which is, you know, which is, which is huge. Um, and so, yeah, I, and I think as you layer on more pro protocols in terms of collateral, you're going to get more income. So you've, you've, <laughs> you've kind of decreased expense on one side and then over time hopefully um you know interest on the other side of the business increases and ultimately they become a break-even you know business over time and we think like at that point they're going to really re-rate on a multiple basis and uh that's why we think the kind of price appreciation over the last 30 to 45 days has been so robust relative to um anything else is because people have built in an expectation that something's going to get done on the governance side. And there's been a lot of attention drawn to this, um, which is great. Now we just have to follow through with doing something that's going to be accretive and value uh, driven for ANC holders. Is that, is that the right way to think about it though? Cause it is a governance token, right? So um, the, I'm, I'm, 
is it, is it right to think that value should accrue to a governance token or should the value be accruing to the uh, protocol, in which case the best proposal is whatever is best for the protocol rather than the, the token price? Well, the, the token, well, first, it benefits all token holders and not just the governance holders, which are staking. You have to stake to vote here. Um, so all tokens will, you know, appreciate. And ultimately, if you're proposing something that's good for the business, it's good for sustainability. It's good for good for the long term success of the platform. It also helps Terra because they don't have to inject as much capital going forward. Um, and so we've been very cautious and very diligent about what can be done, uh, what can be done here, what changes can be made. We've engaged, you know, world best in class consultants and, uh, and developers and making sure that this can be implemented. Um, so yeah, we've given a lot of thought and we think the whole system's gonna be better after this is implemented. I've, I've got one, one more question for you here. Um, you know, what, I know one of the objectives, right, of, of Terra is to try to expand, or for UST is to try to expand onto other protocols in general. Um, can you talk to me about how just complicating the yield structure, right, in Anchor could actually, like the impact on like AUST, right, and the ability to kind of spread uh, like UST across different protocols? Like what are some of the downsides, I suppose, of... of uh... Yeah, I think... Uh, um... You know, obviously, some of those concerns have been raised, and um, you know, we don't, you know, we don't want to impede the, uh, you know, the adoption of you know UST to other platforms because we think that's, you know, that's obviously critical. We've all obviously taken account um, a lot of the, you know, impact to mirror, which we also want to, you know, be very careful of, and and we've basically validated from these are this is coming from the some of the largest token holders that have been with the business since, you know, it was launched and, um, you know, we've consulted experts, we've consulted token holders, developers, and their, uh, their feedback was, you know, this can be done, has to be done carefully. And there, there probably needs to be, you know, some resource focus on this, but it's not going to be a detriment to, um, you know, the adoption of, of UST or the protocol. I wonder, you know, one one of the great things about DeFi is that generally uh, the little guy can game the system just as well yep. as the big guy, right? Um, so you're differentiating between uh, large depositors and small depositors, but is it not the case that small depositors are, you know, playing the game just the same way? Yeah, as the whales I think are? you know, on, on the smaller side, if if uh, you know, if I've, if someone wants to create five wallets at a hundred thousand dollars a piece, yeah, so be it. I mean, it's going to look it's actually optically going to look great in terms of adoption. Um, uh, so we recognize that there is going to be some gaming of the system at the margin, but um, you know, this is meant to be a first step. If, if we, you know, there, it can always be revised. It can always be tweaked. Um, but we think this is a step in the right direction. It's conservative. Uh, we made it, you know, we made it that way. Uh, we definitely want to preserve the adoption trend going forward. If that means some people game the system on the margin, then, you know, that's okay. Uh, but we're really trying to focus on, you know, the larger institutions that they would have to take on a considerable amount of custodian risk and operational cost to actually, you know, manage hundred wallets for a, you know, $50 million, uh, deposit in the system. 
But why, why not just, uh, you know, ANC uh, pays people to borrow, right? Like, why not just stop paying people to borrow? Uh, or why not just, you know, cut the rate to a sustainable rate for everyone? Rather yeah, than I think, I think, you know, if you, if you think about how the income statement works or how profit is being generated, it's, you know, the borrowing, the lending business is where you make your money. And the last thing you want to do is uh, implement something that's going to slow that process down. I mean, it's, I think it, in some, in some ways, that's even more important to incentivize, um, you know, then even then the deposit side, uh, because that's going to help you break even the fastest from here. For, the, for those who aren't familiar, Matt, can you just describe what that process looks like on the borrower side? Like how, how, why does that side of the, why does that generate the income? Yeah, because if, um, so say I have, you know, I have Luna, I put up Luna as collateral, I borrow against that in UST and um, Anchor receives interest on that loan Okay. And then they're also able to stake Luna and earn rewards on Luna. <clears throat> so you've got interest on UST, you've got rewards um, from Luna, and we think that blended rate is somewhere you know closer to 10% versus 20. Um, and so if you you know if you adjust the if you adjust the uh, you know the yield on the deposit side, and you're able to add more sources of collateral on the lending side, uh, that income should should increase pretty dramatically. So, so how does this all get resolved? Like, what's the timeline here? Like, when does the vote happen? I, I think it's happening yeah. today, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's happening now. Um, you know, there's been a lot of participation. Um, uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're ahead on, you know, number of votes cast in, in favor. Uh, we just, we launched this yesterday. It's, it's a, a seven day process and quorum needs to be reached for this to go, to go live. We think that's going to be reached today. Um, and yeah, we, we really want, you know, just if your listeners or uh, viewers are, are watching the show, I think it's, I think this is a really great opportunity to participate in governance. Um, and at least, you know, watch what happens. Um, if you're staked vote and, and, uh, I think this could be a great, you know, great outcome for from everybody. Even even this process, I think, has been good for for anchor and you know attention, and uh, highlights how the community and token holders get involved can make positive change. Matt, is there any sort of concern from the from the folks who are building this stuff, the folks at anchor, that if you implement some sort of tokenomics proposal, that the actual dev side of things is is quite complex versus just maybe changing like a rate or something like that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've we heard that kind of defense a lot. Um, I think the reality is, is we've, we've just gone to extreme lengths to confirm that, um, you know, any additional resources required to implement this are not gonna be, um, you know, at the margin detrimental for, for Anchor. Um, and this is, you know, these uh, suggestions are pretty straightforward in terms of you know, math and the linear uh, taper on the yield. And we think on, from a smart contract basis, this can be definitely done. Got it. Byron, Mike, you feel up to date? That's it for me. I feel very up to, I'm digesting all of this. I'm digesting. Mike, can <laughs> I ask, can I ask a, 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 an, an inflammatory this, question? <laughs> sure. What's, what's the difference between uh, Luna and uh, iron titanium? 
an iron head team. I, Matt's like, get me off this podcast. <laughs> go for it. Because <laughs> <laughs> that the, the tokenomics seem very similar, and I think the answer is that you know Luna is building this this whole ecosystem of utility that that um, that uh, iron titanium didn't have. Yeah. Um, but it was the same burn and mint mechanism, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we believe you know Terra is obviously a uh, just more sustainable business. Um, and, you know, has shown that over the last, uh, you know, last six to 12 months in terms of just the, you know, the increase in adoption and, and TBL, uh, you know, it's, it's been great. Um, thanks for having me on the, on the podcast, having a platform to talk more about anchor and, uh, anyone out there, make sure you awesome. vote. Matt, well, we appreciate the time. All right, Feel yeah. free to drop and, uh, yeah, be well. All right, friends, quick break to share some exciting DeFi updates from Avalanche, which is one of the fastest and the most eco-friendly smart contract platforms out there. If you haven't been keeping up with the DeFi innovation on Avalanche, it is madness. There are new DeFi protocols launching on Avalanche on a daily basis. The ecosystem is getting pretty incredible. I thought I'd call out like three different projects that I'm keeping an eye on right now. The Platypus Wars are heating up on the new stable swap protocol. Dexalot is launching soon. They've got this unique price discovery mechanism and an on-chain limit order book. I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, and then also Trader Joe just launched a brand new set of tokenomics to participate in token launches, stablecoin farming, and governance tokens. Really, really interesting innovation coming out of the DeFi space on Avalanche. Uh, and then also just beyond DeFi innovation, there's a study I thought you guys might find interesting. The Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute assessed the carbon efficiency of six of the leading networks. They found that Avalanche consumes 35,000 times less energy than Ethereum and 200,000 times less than Bitcoin. Obviously, go do your own research. There's this study uh, from the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute that is CCRI. You can go read it uh, on your own. But if you guys want to build DeFi products, if you want to use DeFi and want to do it in an eco-friendly way, do it on Avalanche. Now, let's get back to the show. One thing I would love to get, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like Matt didn't really want to talk about it, but I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on just the LFG foundation and this collateralization that they're doing with Bitcoin in general. Um, so I don't know if you saw this, but there's something pretty cool. Yeah, so the there's there's very important, you know, stablecoin pool on on Curve, right, which is, you know, between, um, you know, US, the, the staples, right? So it's like UST, there's DAI, there's USDC. Um, and the LFG Foundation, they tweeted out that there's been an imbalance in the pool, right? There's a huge demand for UST because the yield that you can get in the Anchor Protocol, it's like 19%. Jason, you said the yield on every other stable is falling. So basically what LFG is going to do is they're going to burn, you know, read swap uh, 4.2 million Luna, which is like a billion and a half dollars, uh, I'm pretty sure, at the current value. Um, uh, they're going to mint that, so turn it into UST. They're going to sell it back into the pool, and then they're going to use those proceeds to buy basically a billion and a half dollars worth of Bitcoin, which is pretty crazy. That's, I mean, that's crazy to me on a bunch of levels. Like one, that's just another sustainable source of demand for Bitcoin in general. Two, that's a $1.5 billion market buy, I think, for Bitcoin, uh, which is pretty sizable. Um, and it actually just reminds me, Jason, of this point that you made on your podcast with Jim Bianco uh, last week or, or whenever it came out, which is decentralized stablecoins were going to be the ones that ultimately ended up winning. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for that, but I thought it was very cool. I don't know if Byron, do you have any other takes there on that whole thing? Yeah, I have, I have a lot of questions about that. I mean, for one, the the Luna that's being burned is not being, that's not Luna that's being bought in the market, right? That's just Luna that they printed themselves at zero, right? 
That happens at the protocol level. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure of the specifics, but you can, that the UST and Luna, you consider it like a swap. It's not like they're going onto an exchange and like, like Astroport or something like that and actually exchanging it. Right. So that, that shouldn't be the reason why the Luna token price has gone crazy. So I'm, I'm still not totally clear on, on why it's been as good as it, it has been. Um, and then also just, I feel like this relationship between LFG and Luna and UST is, it's just kind of antithetical to the spirit of crypto, right? Because it's, you know, it's, it's not encoded in smart contracts. You don't really know, uh, what the, what the collateral is for or how it's going to be used or when it's going to be used or why it's going to be used. Um, it's just, it just, uh, I don't know. It just seems kind of anti-crypto to me. I think, uh, you know, to zoom out for a second, like there are two different models that people have for building stables or stable coins. There's, you you need two things. You need demand for your stable and then you need reserve assets. So like Ohm, so you can kind of start with one or the other and Ohm started with the reserves. So they had this kind of, I don't want to call it a scheme, but like kind of a scheme to accumulate like a whole bunch of reserves very quickly, which is basically, Hey, Park these reserves with us and we'll give you a bunch of this coin is going to be very inflationary. But people that got in early did extremely well. So they kind of started with the reserve. But I think the big problem is that they never actually found a source of demand for the coin that they were giving out. Uh, Terra was almost like the opposite, right? They started and they, they bootstrapped based on actual demand from payments uh, in South Korea, Chai, right? So they kind of started with demand for UST. And now I think they're in the process of accumulating reserves to actually safely collateralize that system. I think people realize that the Luna system of that, like that mint switch mechanism between Luna and UST is probably not everything that that's not the end state, right? So I think they're working on getting other sources of collateral. Um, And right now, part of that is like VCs pouring money into Terraform labs, which is then stabilizing the yield reserve in anchor. That's like part of it. And then part of it is just they're transforming some of the Luna and UST into more stable things like Bitcoin. Right. But you would expect yeah. that um, for a collateralized stable coin that the collateral collateral would be within the protocol, right? It just seems funny to me that it's outside of the protocol. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and then was that, I, I mean, that, I don't think that was part of the original plan, was it? There wasn't there wasn't an original roadmap that says we're going to add collateral at some point. So, like, why are they adding collateral now? Like, it seems like everything's going great. Like, it's the you know, it's got a huge market cap. It's outperforming everything. Like, why why are they adding collateral now? I think that is the big question, isn't it? Was like, was this always the plan, or was it not? And is this is this a pivot? I would I would guess it's a pivot, but I, I I'm purely I have no inside information. I would purely guess that it's a pivot, but I think it's a smart one to be honest. Um, and it, you know, it gets to a high level thing. It's like everyone, you know, the whole narrative, like everything in crypto for the whole time I've been in here has been wait. You just wait until the institutions come in, right? Just wait wall of demand, all this stuff. Uh, wait till central banks view, view Bitcoin, like they do gold and they'll buy it to hedge this deflating fiat system, et cetera. Uh, and basically the whole time I've been in crypto, the, the trend that you could observe is fade that narrative, just fade it. And actually the people that do best will like, find crypto native crypto kind of bootstraps its own demand. And what's interesting to see is, you know, to connect it to Jim Bianco's point, Jim Bianco's point on centralized uh, one-to-one US dollar backed stable coins versus the decentralized ones was that the regulators in the, in the financial system are actually never going to allow the centralized ones to get big enough. 
because they view them as money market funds and they're really worried about a, essentially like a run on the fund, right? Because eventually people put money in, but then they want to take it out. So they're worried that people want to move their funds back into the fiat ecosystem. They're going to have to sell whatever like corporate debt or holdings that they have uh, that's securing, right? The USDC and there'll be a run. So the door is actually, so basically his theory is that there's a limit on how big those stable coins can get, but there's kind of no limit on, on decentralized algorithmic stable coins like UST. And what's really interesting is that they are, essentially collateralizing it with digital gold, Bitcoin. And it looks more like, not exactly like, but more like a Bretton Woods semi-gold standard type system than the purely fiat one that we have now. So it's just interesting but to is, see that kind of get replicated. Is, is UST still an algo stablecoin if the collateral is outside of the algorithm? I'm I'm sure that I'm an idiot for asking this uh, live, but why why is that such a critical detail? Um, well, that, isn't that isn't that the the you know the the point of of crypto is that everything is encoded in smart contracts and you can read the smart contracts. Not that I can, but people can read the smart contracts and see exactly what's going to happen when whatever happens. Right. But in this case, you're dependent on somebody at LFG uh, making a, a decision to, huh. you know, defend the peg at some point whenever they want. To, uh, right? My take on this is that everything in crypto has been a spectrum, right? And on one side of the, and like, if you look at stable coins, the spectrum is on one side of things, you've got USDC where it's fully collateralized by things like, like very outside of the crypto system, like us dollars. Right. And then on the other side of things, you have algorithmic stable coins where every single thing about the, uh, stable coin, including the algorithm. And like, that's all in the smart contracts. That's all on chain. And what Terra is doing seems like what has been the successful model so far in crypto is to find some sort of middle ground, right? Where they're saying that DeFi and like this decentralized economy that we're building needs some sort of decentralized money and that the decentralized money needs decentralized reserves. And that's where Bitcoin comes in is to collateralize the, the UST with, with the Bitcoin. And I don't know. I actually don't have as big of a problem as you have with it, Byron, because uh, I'd rather have some sort of middle ground than just like 50 more takes at an algorithmic stablecoin that I've seen blow. Those have blown up every single time. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting for those to prove me wrong and hopefully we find one that's successful. And I know there are a lot of decentralized stables that are raising, but historically those have blown up every single time. And I think it's good to have, yeah, I think Byron. it's good to have some sort of pushing farther on the spectrum of decentralization than we have with some of the big stables right now, uh, especially as we got like the uh, executive order coming down. Obviously, the U.S. government is taking things really, really seriously right now with crypto. So I think it's also it's a I, I think a lot of this depends on their path, right? What they view as the ultimate end state here, um, because it seems like. It's Bitcoin is going to be the primary sort of reserve asset of this new, uh, you know, new decentralized stablecoin. But I, I would I'd guess the next thing that they're going to is ETH, right? And other and other types of assets. Um, so almost like a basket of different types of reserves is what I would guess they're heading towards. But and you're, you're right, Brian. I mean, there's not a lot of transparency into how that actually works from a governance standpoint and who defends the peg. And at, at the end of the day, from a first principle standpoint, is that that different from the current system we have? I don't. Have, those but are, if they're, if they're collateralizing it with other cryptos, and that is only actually really helpful in a scenario where uh, you know Luna collapses, but no other crypto, no other cryptos do. Right? If it's a if Luna is going down because all of the cryptos are going down, which is the most likely scenario, right? Then that's not that super helpful, right? 
Yeah, I agree with that. I th- but I, again, I think that, that that's impermanent. I, I think that those correlations will continue to break down over time. Like it, like it doesn't make sense really from any first principle standpoint that Luna and Bitcoin's price be, at least to me, uh, it, like I, 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 I think if you put yourself in the shoes of, let's say you're approaching this, of, there's a whole bunch of different protocols doing a whole bunch of different things, right? There are sectors and it would, it, in this new crypto economy where there are different sectors, it would make sense that just like in the regular economy, there are safe haven assets like gold and there are risk assets like Netflix. It would make sense to me that eventually the end state of this new crypto economy with different sectors, you have risk off assets like Bitcoin and risk on assets like like, I don't want to call Luna risk on asset, but you know what I'm talking about. So I, I think it's probably early days and that would, that end state is very little comfort, right? Because I'm sure there's an enormous amount of correlation between Bitcoin and Luna today, but I guess theoretically it wouldn't be like that in the future. What about the VCs that are uh, putting in the funding for these collateral buys? Um, are they just making, they're just making a bet on Luna? I'm actually not hundred percent sure how that works. Standpoint. Um, I thought I thought it was interesting that you know VCs would be funding collateral buys because usually you know you think of VCs as giving a company capital to develop a business, right? But this is they're giving them capital just to buy collateral, which is kind of interesting. I also thought that it was interesting that Jump, I think, is was the was the like the headliner name of the VCs. Um, so that made me think, I wonder if jump is now like the Warren Buffett of crypto because, you know, they were, they, because they rescued Solana. Now everyone is going to go to jump. You know, the, the jump is going to have first look on every single deal, right? Because everyone wants, you know, wants the, the, to be associated with the jump name. Yeah. It was jump in, in three case, arrows. In which I case they're going to make a, uh, they're going to make, they're going to make back that whatever 300 million they spent or whatever on, on ETH. They're going to make that back very quickly. Jump is the new Fed. That's the uh, that's the motto. Sorry to jump people listening. All right, let's uh, let's let's jump forward here. Uh, no pun intended. God, that was horrible. All right, <laughs> <laughs> executive order this week. Uh, Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden's executive order. Let's talk about this. I think there was a lot of talk, and I think it'd be helpful to break it down here first. I think it's important to just touch on what the executive order does and what this is. When I read executive order, it seems like some very high and powerful thing that was coming down with some immediate change, but that is not what that actually means. There's no real direct action that needs to be taken from this order yet, right? All of all this report did and this executive order did was basically lay out a series of uh, processes and deadlines for what what seems to be like an interagency team that is going to write a framework around crypto in these six like very, very broad categories. The first one was protecting consumers. No surprise there, protecting consumers and investors. The second was protecting the US and global financial stability. Very interesting, something we can talk about there. Third is uh, addressing illicit finance. seems like this narrative is never going to go away. The fourth is reinforcing U.S. financial leadership. The fifth is access to safe and affordable financial services products. And the sixth is supporting technological advances. What are your guys' take? Did either of you have a chance to go through this exec order? Either of you guys have any any takes here? I read the executive summary of the executive order, which I think is more than most people have done. I read the Twitter post of the executive summary of the executive order. So I feel good about that, Byron. So derivatives in the age of social media. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I think I, I think all you need to know is in the first couple of paragraphs of the even just the executive summary. Um, you know, the first sentence of the second paragraph is was about 
an opportunity to reinforce American leadership. And I think that's, you, you really didn't need the, you didn't need to read the rest of it. That's, uh, uh, I think that tells you all you need to know. Kind of positive opening paragraph, wasn't it? Yeah, it was kind of like a pump me up. Three trillion dollar asset class, enormous amount of adoption. I was like, all right, <laughs> that's pretty cool. That's I mean, I'm sure they have to provide some sort of justification for why they're doing this, but I thought it was kind of sounds like positive. sounds like they outsourced it to Blockworks or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> New revenue stream right there. I no, I had yeah, a similar take, Mike. I mean, Jer- Jeremy Allaire said it best, right? The executive order TLDR. This is a, as Jeremy said, a watershed moment for crypto. Um, and Web3, and as, as he explained it, as Jeremy, someone who built an internet business in the 90s and took it public in that first dot-com bubble, this is akin to the 1996-1997 government wake-up to the commercial internet. Um, and I think this that the executive order is just quite important as it shows that the, the our government is now taking what the three of us on this uh, call pro- or podcast probably believe to be uh, true, is that the U.S. government is now waking up to the fact that digital assets, crypto is one of the most significant technologies uh, that we have over the next couple of decades. And that it's important that this industry gets built in the US uh, instead of somewhere else. So I have I have another reason for why I think it's important. This is an analogy that gets way overused in crypto. But it's, it's like the one with like people with blindfolds over their face and they're all touching an elephant and someone touches the trunk and someone touches the leg and someone touches the torso. They all describe a different thing. So in the US, there are these like this patchwork of regulators on the federal level, on the state level. And I think there's been kind of jockeying because crypto is so many different things. There's been kind of, uh, you know, interagency competition about who gets what jurisdiction, right? This is definitely happening between the SEC and the CFTC. Honestly, probably a lot of Gensler's Tough talk is him showing to folks in Washington that, see, I'm serious enough. I'll actually be tough and fair on this industry. I think he's just trying to expand the SEC's uh, jurisdiction in crypto. What was so interesting, what was cool for me about this executive order is basically a stamp of, first of all, probably nothing draconian is going to happen, right? Uh, This is a a deadline for when we're actually going to get a serious framework for how to do this. And we're telling which agencies should tackle which parts of this of the concerns that the United States have. So if you actually, so I actually went and read the executive order, shame on both of you, uh, but they actually do designate toward which agency should be, uh, you know, focused on which acts essentially. So I think it was, it was actually kind of useful purely from a coordination standpoint about, okay, treasury, you take this part, SEC, uh, you know, chamber of commerce, you take this part. Um, so I, I thought it was just good from a purely coordination standpoint, who does what. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I agree. I mean, I think it's just they, this is now the biggest takeaways that this is now a legitimate, serious, important part of the economy and society and that they're now taking it seriously and assigning. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mike, about they're actually assigning who's going to do what. Um, so, yeah. Um, I had some, I had some other thoughts on it too. Um, I thought there was I think like, I have a thought, which is they are, this is going to lead to uh, right now. It's a, Right now, w- without any regulation, uh, brand building and company building is very fair. And again, this is just my take. Don't know anything about what's coming. But I think that what ends up happening is, is there's going to be a lot of regulation that gets put in place. A, that's a good thing for the industry as it will uh, just, I, I think, kind of nullify a lot of the regulatory FUD. But the other thing that regulations oftentimes lead to are like king making. So you can quickly see a world where like, let's take crypto exchanges every crypto exchange has been able to operate in the exact same way. And it's just been, it's come down to like how fast can you build products and how quickly 
uh, can you acquire users? There could be a world where uh, U.S. Regula regulators almost king make like five or six or seven of the exchanges. And those are the exchanges that are allowed to operate in the U.S. And no one else is allowed to operate in the U.S. And that would be, uh, there are positive and actually negative ramifications from that. But you could see a world where other things start getting like king making starts happening or, or they come down really heavily on something like DeFi, but let things like BlockFi happen. So do you think, do you think we develop into a regulated industry and an not unregulated industry? You know, one where you just log on and one where you log on with a VPN. Um, kind of, I, I think the distinction right now is going to be between CFI and DeFi. I, I think Matt Levine, your counterpart, Byron, uh, has done a really good job of outlining this. And I, this is where I think it's kind of... So, okay, so BlockFi, right? Anyone who has ever interacted with BlockFi knows how professional that operation is, right? They're really trying to do things by the book um, and, and be regulated and interface with people, and they're not doing anything shady. Uh, so they just got hit with a $100 million fine from the SEC because they defined their interest-bearing accounts as, as an investment product. And I can kind of see that, but at the same time, there's all this other stuff. It's like they're trying to engage. They're trying to do things right and play by the book, but they're a regulatable entity because they're a company and they're engaging and they get hit with this big fine. And then you have this thing over in like, oh, we're like totally decentralized, totally decentralized land and we can just do whatever we want kind of with impunity. And at the end of the day, it's not that decentralized over in super decentralized land, right? That's a lot of the risk with a lot of these early stage. Pro I'm not ragging on anyone. It's just the reality of early stage projects. So I think it's less like, VPN versus non-VPN and more the companies that try to be regulated and are more CFI type companies and more Wild West DeFi companies. Um, I, that's how I see the distinction being drawn. And I'm, I, I don't actually know what the eventual end state of that is uh, because you could see a world. Wow. Stealing your phrase, Jason. Uh, you could see a world where the, the CFI regulated stuff really dominates, but I could easily see a world too where the people that just flout the rules and take the Uber approach and say regulation will catch up to us end up getting huge and winning. So I, I don't really, I don't know how it ends up playing out. Here's my, here's the most interesting part for me is that um, it seems like the US government is starting to understand that it needs to slow down on the regulation of stables or CBD, some sort of some sort of US dollar backed stable coin and allow the market to put stable US dollar backed stable coins in the hands of billions of people. I think that, uh, that they had a couple of things in there around like reinforcing US financial leadership. Um, that's, I mean, just their their desire to protect the like superiority of the U.S. dollar. I think stands out as one of the uh, as as a as a way to get inside of how some of them are thinking about that. That's a more long term take in my mind that they're thinking about this. So that's interesting to see. I wonder how much of uh, of that is a function of the current stuff in the Ukraine. Um, just you know, everyone's realized how much leverage we have uh, via financial warfare. 100%. So the deadline, so the executive order that I think Biden signed yesterday laid out a deadline for 180 days, right, for a comprehensive framework to be delivered to him, except on the illicit financing part, which is 90 days. So that was actually expedited. And I'm, I'm sure that had to do with political pressure from the war in Ukraine and everything. Um, so actually, on some, some of the, I, I had some like specific pros and cons, like that's 
things that I thought were very bullish and maybe some things that were a bit more worrisome. So I thought I thought on the bullish side, I thought it was really good actually that they called out, um, you know, they wanted to promote U.S. leadership in technology and economic competitiveness. That's their exact word. I thought that was the most kind of optimistic and promising part of the whole thing. Uh, they did specifically call out CBDCs in general. I didn't really know what to think about that. So they explicitly called on the Fed to begin investigating that. I think they already had been investigating it, but now it's part of an executive order. So I guess it's just that much more official. Um, they also had a very specific phrase, uh, which was kind of buried in there. Um, which is this idea about sovereign money is at the core of a well-functioning financial system, macroeconomic stabilization policies, policies and economic growth. That's kind of buried in some of the fine print. So that idea, I think, has not changed, right? That they view a sovereign form of money as being a solution to a lot of woes. And I mean, we talked about... I. Did this interview i don't think it's it won't have aired by the time this airs but i do wonder if sanctions are actually as good as everyone thinks they are like oh this is this new evolved 21st century form of warfare and by starving people out that's somehow going to limit the amount of killing and violence and i, I think it could exacerbate things and make people more desperate but yeah i think i think some of those core ethos problems between crypto is a neutral payments infrastructure and I, i'm not sure that was 100 percent I think some of those, uh, this executive order and some of the wording kind of laid bare the ideological inconsistencies by how the U.S. is approaching it versus how crypto is approaching it. Are, uh, are CBDCs good for the crypto industry? I'm not sure if I'm rooting for or against that. <laughs> and you can make a compelling use case. I could compelling rooting against it. I would say I'm rooting against them. I don't because they're not crypto. They're not. It's not crypto. It's it doesn't. It's not. It's not built. It's not going to be built on Ethereum's rails. It's it's just going to be a digital currency. I think they'll call it a CBDC, but there's no. They're not going to build it on like ETH's rails or any sort of. I don't. I don't know why. I don't know what the argument for. It's not going to integrate into DeFi protocols. Like I don't know what the argument for being pro CBDC. Well, why would it? Is. Why would it not integrate? I assume that it would do. Because it's not built on crypto rails, like USDC is built on USDC. And all and like tether, like oh, yeah. I mean, USDC is USDC on like every every blockchain, right? Why why could a why would a US CBDC not be also on every blockchain? I would guess it's because I mean this goes all the way back to this super old debate, like public versus private blockchains. I, I assume for security concerns, they would want to have a, a limited set of nodes or validators or whatever um, in that system. So I think for all intents and purposes, it would be like this adjacent blockchain that might be interoperable. Um, but I, but I actually view it as like, I think if we ever got a CBDC, it would just exacerbate all the problems that we currently have with money. You know, I mean, they would definitely look at it as a way to cross the zero lower bound and have even more direct monetary control, which I think crypto kind of says is a, is a problem. So I, the way I interpreted your question there, Byron was actually, I think it could actually make some of our problems with the money system worse and hasten the adoption of an alternative. But I think that process would be messy. So that's why I'm not sure if I'm voting for it or against it, but I don't know. I feel like if it was a CBDC that was uh, issued by commercial banks in the same way that, you know, commercial banks print money, um, I feel like that would, would that not just mainstream DeFi and crypto uh, and in a way that would be, you know, good for the industry? But how, but how in that scenario, like commercial banks lend that money into existence, right? How would that work in a in a distributed ledger? 
ecosystem. I think that's the, because that would have to be baked into some sort of inflation or issuance schedule, right? I just, I don't, I don't understand how the, the system would work the same. Well, I, I mean, a, a, a bank could just, could just, uh, you know, print the CBDC in, in the same way that they print dollars. Yeah. I think that kind of undermines the the point of what most people see though, of about digital money, which is that it's a transparent monetary policy. Wouldn't it just, but that would just be tethered back by the U S government. No? But again, but again, the problem is the, the backed by the U.S. government. Then, uh, yeah, just from first principle, then how how is it much different from the? I think the the problem that most people have with the current system is the the ability to create or you know expand or contract the money supply at will. And I think in this system, you've just got an upgraded infrastructure, but it's the same. It's the same thing, right? It's a limited set of validators. You, it's theoretically more transparent, but nobody really knows because you. It's, it would be really expensive if you, if you view, okay. If you view like a bank as a, as in this scenario that we're talking about here, a bank is kind of the same thing as a, as a, as a Bitcoin node, right? Because the banks are the ones that have the transparency into the light. It's very expensive, obviously to have a bank. I feel like we're getting into the weeds here. I, I, I don't know, but, uh, I, my, my interpretation of a CBDC is that would be kind of, it, it would be antithetical. I, I think it would not. Yeah. I wouldn't, don't think it would work, but it looks like they might create one. So. All right, I'm moving us forward. Andre. Andre and Anton are uh, closing down all of their... Uh, well, then actually, they're not closing down their crypto businesses, but they're stepping away. Uh, Andre, obviously, is the... I think it's fair to call him one of the godfathers of DeFi. Uh, and Andre and his partner are leaving the DeFi space and, and are uh, just kind of walking away. And I think a lot of people call, said, you know, rug pull, rug pull, rug pull. I don't think this is a big rug pull. Um, I want to get your guys' thoughts, but first I'm going to kind of give a little bit of a background on like what happened here and who are on uh, Andre and Anton. I think it's just important to understand like how much they've actually built in DeFi, Yearn Finance, Keeper Network, uh, Multi-Chain, uh, .xyz, Chainlist, Solidly. Uh, they built the like bribe.crv.finance um, uh, platform. And I think it's just... Like Andre, for those who know Andre is like this um, serial introvert, I would call him. And he's just a serial like gigabrain who just loves to build. And I think probably one of, there's this guy, the DeFi Edge on Twitter who had this nice breakdown of this. I think the D, the turning point for Andre came when uh, they announced the VE3 of 3 project that we've been talking a lot about a lot on, on the podcast. And basically it was like Andre was going to build, right? And and Danny Sesta was going to handle the marketing and build hype. And this was this like DeFi match made in heaven. But then obviously in January you had Sifu, the whole Sifu gate thing came out and Zach XPT shared that 0x Sifu was the co-founder of Quadriga X. And that, that whole thing came down and, and Danny's reputation took this huge hit. And so then Danny had to step away from, from VE3 of 3 and other projects to just focus on maintaining uh, Wonderland. And that just left Andre to handle the the new, his new like, it was like all caps, like solid project, right? And Andre's this, my take on him is he's this like gigabrain developer who likes building behind the scenes, but now he was the face of the project and he had to handle marketing and PR and all that kind of stuff. And what happened is they they launched the Solidly ex exchange and like it didn't go super well. There were like bugs and there's confusion and people weren't happy with the UI and and the whales were were doing their stuff and 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 now you had Andre who likes to be behind the scenes 
he he had he now had to handle all of this stuff and he you could start to see him getting fed up i think um and he 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 posted on twitter that he'd only shit post from here on out and he would just share memes all day and and then he deactivated his twitter and then uh what was this it's march 10th today so like march 5th or march 6th andre or his partner anton dropped this bomb that they were leaving the defi space and obviously the implications have been pretty big so far like phantom's price dropped i think 15 20 percent in like 24 hours and a lot of other implications but I'll, I'll pause there do you guys have any quick thoughts on this or not quick thoughts uh my 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 primary thought was just um it's just incredible how uh you know like five billion dollars of tvl went into phantom on that solid project before it was even launched you know a, it's pure tokenomics with no utility it's just an airdrop uh, and that managed to to attract five billion dollars into phantom so like like where does that five billion dollars come from? Uh, and then it just did a complete U-turn and came straight back out when uh, on on the Andre news, um, which is just amazing to me. Like like, do these people know what they're buying? Like they, I feel like this goes back to my theme of uh, tokens are not stocks. Like people people buy these things like solid, which you couldn't even buy. They buy all they bought all of the other things because they were going to get airdrop solid. Uh, and I just wonder, like, do they really know the game that they're playing? Um, if so, that's great. I mean, have fun. But I just the 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 scale of the in and outflows is just amazing to me. Uh, I have I have two takes on this. One, did anyone notice the the actual way that people found out about this was that Andre updated his LinkedIn. I thought that was so funny. Nobody's talked about that. He just updated yeah. his LinkedIn. Everyone saw it. it was like. <laughs> Yeah. He's got to be the only guy in crypto that uses LinkedIn. Uh, I think it's really very, very boomer. I think I that's so I funny. It. I think that's a huge uh, troll. No, anyway, actually, what the way I was looking at kind of Phantom is like Phantom's just Phantom. I think arrived at kind of the end of the biggest trend of the 2020 to 2021 bull run, which was alternative L1s, and I think there were a lot of like very successful L1s. I'm definitely a believer in a multi-chain future. But I think probably the long tail of L1s got a little bit long. And I think that what made Phantom so attractive was that you had this EVM compatible alternative L1. It had some cool branding and stuff like that. But it had this huge embedded option in the form of this Andre Danny team. And they were building like madmen on top of this thing. And I think there were pretty recent examples of where you saw how one ecosystem participant, a giant one, like a Sam Bankman Freed or a three hours capital could essentially make a chain. And this is different because it's not a multi-billion dollar bidder, it's a builder, but arguably a builder is even more valuable than uh, than a multi-billion dollar bidder. So I think people just saw it as this huge option. And then essentially that option expired and people found out it was worthless and the whole value of the protocol went down 25%. I, it actually feels kind of logical to me. I. I, and this isn't to say, you know, Phantom, they, they, their account tweeted this out, which is, look, we've got a 40-person full-time team. You know, Andre has not been a core developer, a core contributor to Phantom. There's a lot more going on here than, than just Andre, and I think that's totally fair and true. Uh, but, but I think a lot of people saw what Andre had done in the past with Yearn. They saw Frog Nation with Danny, and they were like, wow, this is a really powerful force, and him leaving, it just made it. That, not not to say it won't be successful, but I think it just made it that much less attractive. That's my take. Do you guys think he is? Um, do you think that he is burned out, 
Or do you think that this is regulatory psyops <laughs> and he will come back as an anon dev and keep building? <laughs> My take is that he's just burned out. Occam's like he has no interest here. in going on Twitter every day. And <laughs> but, uh, I, do, I do think there's a yeah. good uh, regulatory yeah, uh, angle to it. Out. Is it? You know, you've got some. Now you've got some. Uh, some. Uh, uh, cases to point to and as to you know what's decentralized and what's not decentralized i think you can look at the token price of yearn and when andre quits it doesn't move that i think that's evidence that that is decentralized enough to uh, maybe not be a security according to the howey test um, but all of you know the brand new tokens that went to zero uh, those clearly were dependent on one person and therefore do pass the howey test in our securities just for folks who might not be as for what part of the howey test are you referring to there brian the or Byron, the... Uh, it's the very, it's the very last one that uh, says that the uh, the expectation of profitability is dependent on the efforts of others. Um, so, which is like you know how a you know if you invest in a company, you're dependent on the management of that company to do a good job so that you may so that they make profits and you make a return. Um, if there's something similar in in crypto, then that's going to be deemed a security, uh, which would have been the case like in. Uh, uh, with Wonderland Time, the um, the guy that got outed kept on being referred to as the CFO of Wonderland Time. Like that, just like it was just a massive red flag. Any, anything that has a CFO is clearly a security. Um, so, but in this case, you know, the the most prominent guy associated with Yearn quit, and nothing happened to the token price or the protocol, uh, which is good evidence that it's not a security. I think it's, um, I think also it's just, this is just classic bear market stuff, I think. Um, yeah, I just think people, I was going to say the I same think thing. overall yeah. the industry feels, if I had to characterize it with one word, it's probably just a little tired in general. I mean, it's been a lot, it's been a ton of, it's been a sprint for the last two years and emotions ran high. People thought they had more money than they had. It's just like all the classic stuff. And I, I think this kind of hit home for me because I've just, I genuinely I genuinely just do believe the guy is tired and it's like, do I really want to go through this slog right now? I, I just think this is the kind of classic thing that happens in a bear market. I'm not sure about the, the bull market, uh, bear market take. Cause I mean, if it's, if a solid airdrop could attract $5 billion of T TVL in a couple of weeks, that's not very bear market, right? That's pretty bull market still. But how long ago did that happen? I was only a month ago or something or I don't know. Maybe a little less. Yeah, I mean, I, th I thought it was like right at the end of last year. I, I mean, I think yeah, maybe, it was, maybe it was a couple of months. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, I think I think it was, I think it was a bit of a different time. And uh, there was there was another big botch. I don't know if you guys followed the EVMOS. I'm not gonna. I, so I won't get into too many too many details. But that was another kind of like you know within the Cosmos ecosystem. That was another kind of L1 that was going to launch, and it had a lot of fanfare, and there was a lot of reasons why it was attractive and. They're kind of doing something interesting with their their mission schedule and they're rewarding more users and developers and it was going to be evm compatible there were all these reasons why it was kind of a hyped up uh exciting chain and uh it launched and they they actually pretty ironically now they had this thing called a wrecked drop which was it was supposed to be called that because everyone had just gotten wrecked and it was trying to reward people who were participating in the ecosystem and got wrecked and like make them whole the irony is that they kind of messed up the airdrop. A whole bunch of people weren't allowed to participate. So like a very, very select few people did get to participate. They got outsized rewards. Then there was a security patch that they needed to, to patch through and validators ended up double signing. The whole chain had to get paused. And now they're in this scenario of 
do we restart the chain essentially from right before the mess up or do we restart from the beginning? And it's just a whole cluster. And it's like, oh, God, I, I really feel for the team. Like, I think it was best intentions. But again, this is not scientific at all. But for me, it just I think it kind of marks the end. I think this is just all marking the end of the the L1 phase. I mean, Hasib and Avichal talked about this. It's like there's just narrative exhaustion, right? Last 18 months, every every two to three weeks, there was a new narrative, there's a new exciting thing. And now it's like, I don't know, what are the big things that have happened recently? Like, I mean, DeFi feels pretty dead. You've got like the Safu scandal, the wormhole exploit, NFT rugs left and right, uh, solid kind of was botched in the Phantom Network. Andre and Anton are packing their bags. You've got this thing, EVM most, that I haven't really been following. Like this other smart contract that just seems like it fell on their face. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm also the, getting bear market vibes. Is, uh, are, Byron's are we, are we trader for 30 market, so. years. Byron's never seen a bear market. Byron's Byron's never seen a real bear market. <laughs> Stir the pot. Stir I'm just trying pot. to rile, rile him up, you know? Yeah, I, feel like I, I feel like I missed out on the, uh, the, the layer pot. one lottery <laughs> ticket uh, age and... I wonder if there's ever going to be anything as good as that in crypto again. Layer twos. Just wait till these layer twos launch tokens. They don't even they have will. tokens. <laughs> they will. They will. Yeah. They're not going to, they're not going to, they're not going to go from 10 cents <laughs> to $200, they are they? I don't know. Yeah. 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 Let's wrap it. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap, let's wrap this before we say something that uh, we're not supposed to say on a podcast. Byron. I feel you wanting to I've jump through. Bear markets, I know you though. have seen some bear markets. Uh, I'm not. It's going to be okay. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. What, what is what is crypto's uh, market cap now? 1.7 trillion. That could go to zero, and, and it would not be 2008 or 2000. So, disc, disc. Shun. Um, disc, yeah, disc. I can only imagine. But I really don't. Yeah. All right, guys. This has been a fun one. Um, Thanks to the Jason, Matt. How do we do? How do we do filling in for for Santiago here? Where do we rate on scale? Like a six out of ten, I'd say. <laughs> Probably That's pretty good. Next, next, next time he's going to be uh, yeah. tweeting Elon Musk and getting him to send some uh, some <laughs> internet satellites to Africa. Quick ship some satellites. <laughs> Get some satellites Honestly. in the air over Togo or whatever. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I know. Meanwhile. Santiago is enjoying his like safari or wherever he is these days. So Santiago, we want you back, my friend, Byron and Mike, you were decent sub-ins. Thanks for joining guys. Thanks for listening. Join the discord, drop your questions in the uh, empire discord channel, and we will see you next week. Yes.